0: Do you annoy your family by shouting the answers while watching Jeopardy? Do you drive people crazy when you start a sentence with, well, (laughs) actually. Well, guess what? You can go fact yourself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Go Fact Yourself, the show where we take the smartest people we know and make them look dumb and then smart again. I'm Helen Hong, and now from the Angel City Brewery in downtown Los Angeles, here's our moderator, Jake Keith Van Stratton. Thank you, Helen.
1: Thank you, everybody. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful crowd. Helen, how are you doing?
0: I'm very well, Jake Keith. How are you?
1: I'm excellent. Uh, this is our last episode that we're taping before the Thanksgiving holiday. That's right. Uh, do you have any uh, exciting plans for Thanksgiving? What, or what, is, what does Thanksgiving mean to you in the past?
0: Uh, I usually go to my cousin's in Culver City who hosts a lovely Thanksgiving meal. Um, and I'm happy to do it because a couple of years ago I went to a friend of a friend who had a vegan Thanksgiving. Ooh! And that was rough. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> what, what do they serve at that a vegan rough. Thanksgiving? Nut loaf. Have you guys ever had nut loaf?
1: I like nuts and I like loaf. I don't know if I like the two of them together. It's
0: like meatloaf made out of nuts.
1: Ah. Do they shape it into a turkey? They did. Oh, no. No. I was kidding. I thought I was (laughs) kidding. They really do. No,
0: not into a turkey, but like into a meatloaf type situation. And I'm sure there's a good nut loaf out there, but Mm -hmm. I didn't have it.
1: Has not made it all the way to Culver City. No.
0: No. No. Um no my co- the the one that my cousin does is a full thanksgiving and it's delicious. She does all the trimmings so I get to eat the you know the mashed potatoes and mm. the peas and the asparagus and stuff like that. But uh this vegan thanksgiving was like nut loaf and another nut loaf.
1: <laughs> they just take one nut loaf and, and make it into various trimmings. Yeah, oh. yeah
0: and like and like cauliflower you know <sighs> <laughs> You can't even
1: you're so so disenchanted. You can't finish the And you
0: know me, like I love animals, mm-hmm. and I and I don't eat animals with four legs mm-hmm. because of my love for animals. But vegan nut loaf at Thanksgiving makes you not want to thank, be thankful.
1: Mm. Now, we always had a tradition at my Thanksgivings that I would go to with my grandmother uh, where we would go around the table and everyone uh, either, well, depending on your point of view, either had to or got to uh, say what they were thankful for. That's very nice. It was very nice. Uh,
0: Do you remember memorable things that you said you were thankful for?
1: Well, I was a bit of a smartass as a kid. Of
0: course. uh, Surprise, surprise.
1: (laughs) Yes. Uh, Although I was ahead of my time, I was thankful for podcasts. No, you, I
0: you, <laughs> you spend Thanksgiving and was like, Dear heaven above. Yes. Thank you for podcasts. Thank
1: you for podcasts. They had <laughs> no idea what I was talking about. And I said, One day you'll see and you'll be mildly impressed. <laughs> Today on Go Fact Yourself, two guests will compete to answer questions about facts they know, facts they might not know, and frankly, facts they should know. Plus, we'll meet actual experts on two very different topics. And finally, we'll declare one of our guests the winner of today's show. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Helen,
0: who was up first? She is a playwright, author, and award-winning public radio reporter whose work includes the popular podcasts, the Fina Mendoza Mysteries, and Book Club for Kids. It's Kitty Feldy. Kitty Feldy.
1: Hi, Kitty. It's wonderful to be with you again. Welcome, Kitty. Thank you, Helen. Uh, Kitty, uh, this book club podcast is so wonderful and adorable. Uh, For those who don't know, tell us about what it is and why you wanted to create it.
2: Well, it's a free 20-minute show where a trio of kids discuss... Uh, novel, and they come up with questions for the author. We hunt down the author and ask them the questions. We get a celebrity reader, mm-hmm. and we've had everybody from uh, Valerie Plame, Rahm Emanuel, Adam Schiff, um, a lot of really good actors, uh, including J. Keith Van Straten. Oh yes,
1: thank you so much. Yes, it was my pleasure to do. I was a little taken aback because I did not realize this was a politics uh, podcast for kids that
3: you
2: were doing. No, it was because I, my last gig was covering Capitol Hill, sure. and so you know if you look in Los Angeles, you got access to celebrities who do things on television. Mm-hmm. In Washington, DC, you got access to the celebrities who work on Capitol Hill. So that's what we had at the time. Did, did kids get excited for Adam Schiff? <laughs> like what did he yeah. like what did he read? My favorite thing was Adam Schiff, we always ask at the end of the show, what is your favorite book? Mm-hmm. So Adam Schiff not only told us his favorite book, which if you can imagine is Crime and Punishment. <laughs> He went to the (laughs) Library of Congress and got them to give him a first edition translation of Crime and Punishment. Wow. So if you go to our website, bookclubforkids.org, and you find that, you'll have a picture of him holding up Crime and Punishment.
1: Wow. Wow. Who knew? I I just grabbed a joke of riddles off my bookshelf. I didn't know I had to do that extra legwork. Then he
0: took that first edition and he set a spell over it. (laughs) Yeah. And now we're where we're at.
1: That's right. We're halfway there. We got the crime part done. Now maybe the punishment will <laughs> kick in. Uh- Uh, the show started on an, a local NPR station.
2: Yes. I had a talk show on KPCC, Southern California Public Radio, and mm-hmm. um, once a month, we would kick all of the adults out of the studio and just invite kids in. That's so great. And pretty much the same format that we would do. And you know, when I stopped covering Capitol Hill, I thought, well, what did I have the most fun doing? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't interviewing politicians. <laughs> it was talking to kids about books.
1: Do you miss covering politics now that... No, because no. Okay. no. <laughs> Not at Especially, all. Especially no. I loved
2: politicians. And, and, you know, I wrote a book about my experiences on Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. but through the eyes of a 10 year old girl who's the daughter of a congressman. And
1: that's Fina Mendoza. It's, yes.
2: Yes. The, the book is called Welcome to Washington, Fina Mendoza, because there were so many weird things about Capitol Hill that I would tell at dinner parties. And then I just sort of ran out of people to tell these stories to. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, Washington, D.C. has the ugliest shoes in America. It's so true! Really? That's so
0: true. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. And why do women there still wear pantyhose? Uh, Well, like who wears
2: pantyhose? That has almost gone away. But the other thing, there are dress codes. Like if you want to go on the house floor, women are not allowed to have naked shoulders. Oh my God, I can see her shoulders naked shoulders is that true the only person that's ever broken that rule are two first ladies michelle obama and melania trump both have worn sleeveless dresses everybody else has to wear you know lady jackets as Fina calls them in the book they have to (laughs) wear those sorts of things wait i want to go back to the to the kids podcast what's the age range of the kids well anybody who can read can listen to the podcast but when it comes to discussing the books for the full-length episodes we do short ones with anybody but for the full-length It's fifth to seventh grade, sometimes eighth grade, because younger than fifth grade, all they can talk about is plot. Mm. And I get bored out of my mind.
1: I liked it when they did this. I liked it when they did that. Yeah, And you're like, no,
2: no, just tell me what you think. But when you're in fifth grade, you suddenly have a sense of where you are in the world. And you have opinions about things. And if only an adult would treat you like I had a brain in your head, (gasps) they tell you things. And they tell you amazing things. What kind of things
1: were you not expecting to learn that you heard from kids about books?
2: Well, you know, when they discussed, these were seventh grade girls, and they were discussing uh, Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which I don't think is a kid's book. But that's what they wanted to talk about. All of a sudden, it went down the Me Too path. Mm. Oh. Another book was Jack Gantos's uh, kind of a semi memoir of his weird childhood in Pennsylvania, which was a an Eleanor Roosevelt. You, uh, utopian kind of society and the kids were I asked them to think about creating their own perfect community and the only thing they wanted to talk about was well in that book they only had one guy on a tricycle and that is not enough security you need to have a fully <laughs> trained and a well armed <laughs> security so I'm thinking like these kids live in the safest suburb in America and all they could think about was security issues interesting wow. Yeah. It's kind of a
1: little insight into into what's in the, the zeitgeist for the kids these exactly. days exactly yeah. uh, well the Fina Mendoza not only is it a book I've made that a podcast as well.
2: Yes, you know, in my spare time. No, it. Um, <laughs> I really wanted to be able to share the story with as many people as mm-hmm. possible. And I thought, oh, I know how to do audio. Mm-hmm. And I got about 25 really wonderful actors, including a guy I used to do improv with 100 years ago who plays the dog named <laughs> Senate or something. And when he's having a conversation with the heroine, you think that he's speaking English, but he is not. He is just barking. But you know exactly what he is barking about. Not in a Scooby-Doo kind of way. Sure. Yeah.
1: Of course, you also have had a wonderful career as a playwright. Your plays have been produced all over the world, from England and South Africa, New Jersey, even. Yeah, New Jersey play. was a big. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, wh- How do you find out when uh, when a play of yours is is produced internationally? They and... send you money. Okay, well that's a, that's a good that's a good sign. Uh, have there been any productions that have surprised you?
2: Um, yes, this was my war crimes play, mm-hmm. and I don't even I think this was in. I can't even remember where this was, um, but when I went that night the actor did maybe six lines of what I wrote. Everything else was kind of off the top of his head. And afterwards, you have to go back and say something nice to the actors. And you say, it was a really interesting choices and Mm -hmm. um, really compelling scenes, because I didn't know what was going to happen next coming out of his mouth. And the guys, they came later and they said, he has spent two years, I mean, he spent the last two weeks behind bars. And I'm thinking, if he was in jail, why didn't he learn his damn lies? He had nothing else to do.
1: <laughs> what else is there to do?
2: And then the next night, of course, it was the assistant stage manager who came out with the book in his hand. And he was brilliant.
1: Oh, a star, a star waiting in the wings. Yeah. Kitty, uh, I've been privileged to have you in our audience uh, seeing the show. We certainly appreciate that. We, that. That's awesome. Uh, you also, though, have shown up at a night when we didn't have a show.
2: Uh, so... I really love this show. <laughs> yeah, you
0: get home Wait, early. you came here expecting the podcast and it wasn't here? Yeah. Oh, Kitty! So I had to drink beer. It was really hard. Oh, no.
1: Okay. Well, if any of our listeners out there are wondering, how can I become a guest on the show, come to the show a bunch, and then come to the show when we don't have one, and also maybe be an accomplished playwright, author, and former radio correspondent, as is the lovely Miss Kitty Feldy. (laughs) Helen, against whom will Kitty be competing tonight?
0: He is an actor, writer, and producer who can be seen in his show on YouTube, Good Cop, Great Cop, and a cartoonist whose work regularly appears in The New Yorker. It's Charlie Hankin. Charlie Hankin. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Charlie. Hi, guys. Hi.
1: Good cop. It's not good cop, bad cop. No, it is not. No, it is good cop, great cop. Yes, and it what is. What was the thinking behind that?
4: Well, we needed a name, and <laughs> <laughs> no, we were we started making sketch comedy online in 2011, mm-hmm. and we had no idea f- uh, of what it was going to ultimately and turn into. And the we into. in this case is you and I, your I work with a a writing partner named Matt Porter, who's a filmmaker. He's a director. I've worked with him for years, um, and all we knew was that we wanted to have a regular. Output a regular filmmaking body of work, Mm -hmm. and so we were putting out a video a week for a long time Um, There's 80 plus episodes uh, in the series if you go to goodcopgreatcop.com The name was just kind of the best we could do at the time (laughs) Okay, I think it narrowly beat out a runner-up for a title and the runner-up was types of candles so that gives you a sense. I think you made the wise choice there. Oh, thank you very yeah. much. I mean, I like
1: types of candles like
4: the next guy.
0: So, so the show is not related to cops.
4: There's no law enforcement whatsoever. Oh. It's, it's sketch comedy, it's, but it's shot cinematically and acted in a very sort of verite grounded right. style. Um, we've been called sketch with a sense of impending doom. Um, and we try to uphold that descriptor as much as we possibly can. I also read that you've been described as the Jewish key and peel. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> is that... Mostly from YouTube commenters. Uh, no. <laughs> so that might not be a compliment.
1: You know what? I take it as such. All right, very good. Now, you have written many, many cartoons for The New Yorker. Yes. That's, that is the, the gold standard for a Pants, cartoonists. Thank you. Yeah. yeah uh, um,
4: it was always kind of a dream. You know, The New Yorker is out there, and if you're, you're – aware of cartoons and cartooning as a little kid they're the first part of the new yorker you can read so it was in there in my brain from an early age
1: now i know a lot of our listeners have tried several times and have not been successful my (laughs) uncle johnny included Uh um what is the secret if you want to get a cartoon accepted into the new yorker you know about the secret uh, put a dog no. in a psychiatrist chair. <laughs> I'm just,
4: I'm just messing with you. Oh okay. no! no, no I was, just I was uh, like, what's the? Secret? What is it? No, what is no, it? no, no. I mean, what's uh, the key. The, the key, uh, such, such that it is. I I think is to be prolific. Is to submit. All the time, mm. submit many captions at a time, and, and bounce them off of your friends and family. You know, the the cartoon editor emeritus Robert Mankoff always used to say that the best thing you can get is an audience. Mm. So if you have a way to test out your one-liner and, and ask a friend, hey, do you think this is funny? Then you have a little a focus group with which you can take the data oh. from that and try and yeah. try and only submit art, your best stuff. Art requires stuff. work. I'm afraid so. Uh, not <laughs> interested.
1: Uh, so you've had dozens that have made it in print. What what percentage? would you say of the ones that you've submitted don't make it? Probably 90. Oh, 90%. wow, that high. Yeah,
4: the, the expectation is that you'll, you'll come to a cartoon meeting, or if you're submitting remotely, you'll, you'll send in a batch of about 10 cartoons mm-hmm. per week. Um, and, and it's a good week if you can sell
1: one. Uh, one last thing. You, you, this, of course, is a game show. You have a history with game shows. Uh, <laughs> tell us about uh, your game show accomplishments.
4: I was a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Oh. <laughs> With with Regis or with Meredith or somebody else? With Meredith. Nice. Yeah. um, How'd you do? I did okay. I won $19,500. Okay.
0: (laughs) That's good. They, they had
4: just reformatted the show in such a way that, that you bank money as you go, and, and rather than walk away with nothing, if mm-hmm. you, you answer incorrectly, what you could do is you, you get to the end of the line. You say, oh, I'm out of lifelines. I don't know the answer right. to this question. Rather than venture a guess, what I'm going to do is walk away with half of what I banked. Right. So, oh. so I must have had close to 40000 banked oh. at that point. And I said, I will take the money rather than risk it all on this question. I have no idea about it. Oh, do you okay. remember
0: what the question was? Oh, you better believe What
4: is it? Whenever there is a silence or I close my eyes, the Uh question returns to me. (laughs) Now, the question was, which one of these president's daughters was born on the 4th of July? Uh. And it's, of course, multiple choice. I was out of lifelines, uh, and the options were the Bush twins, Chelsea Clinton, Malia Obama, and someone else. And, of course, everyone knows the answer is... (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 that's exactly yeah, what yeah, I yeah. thought We'll edit that in and The post. answer is Malia Obama
1: Ah
4: oh, But who would know that?
0: No one That guy
1: maybe You but, just have yeah. to know it or Unless
4: know it. it's Sasha Obama It is an, uh, Obama, it an Obama daughter It yes. so yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah I mean that's I think you made the right choice There's no yeah. way to make An educated guest You no. just yeah. have
4: a one in four chance mm-hmm. If it's a four part I would have walked choice. away With 19
0: grand
1: yeah. yeah Well it's wonderful to have you here Congratulations on all your accomplishments Mr. Charlie Hankin Thank you Uh, Charlie and Kitty, we asked each of you to provide us with a few topics outside your field of work in which you feel you have some expertise. Kitty, you said you know a lot about the Dodgers' move to L.A. from Brooklyn, Theodore Roosevelt and his children, and the TV show Bonanza. Whereas, Charlie, you said you know a lot about 2001, A Space Odyssey, the making of the atomic bomb, and this somehow tracks the Heaven's Gate cult. Yes, that is correct. (laughs) All right. Wow. A lot of variety in the show tonight. Well, later on, we're going to ask you some in-depth trivia questions about one of those topics, but first, we're going to get your thoughts on something you might know nothing about. It's time to split some hairs with our What's the Difference round. We'll have one question for each of you, each worth up to two points. If either of you gives an incorrect answer, the other person has a chance to steal. Your topic today, there's no place like home. Kitty, you're up first in the topic of there's no place like home. They both are ways of determining the value of a home, but what is the difference between a home appraisal and assessment? Appraisal and assessment. Kitty nodding confidently, perhaps, now (laughs) shrugging, now giving out mixed signals I can't pick up. My father
2: wrote the book that almost everybody in California uses to pass the California real estate exam. He literally
1: wrote the book on this? Wow. We really should have done more research.
2: (laughs) So uh, an appraisal, if you're going to get an appraisal, then what you want to know is... um, how much can you sell this particular piece of property for? Mm-hmm. So you want to find an appraiser. I was trying to go with another word for appraiser. Somebody who will be able to look at other sales in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. similar kinds of s- structures, and come up with a number that, that would be reasonable for someone to both pay, to mm-hmm. buy the house, and also to insure it. You have to have something okay. there and to get a loan that will match that number. That's an
1: appraisal. That's
2: an appraisal. An assessment is what the number that the tax assessor uses to figure out how much property tax you should be paying on that property and that it's a combination number of between the land that the house or apartment or whatever sits on and the structure itself.
1: A very thorough answer. We don't know yet if she is correct. <laughs> oh, and now Kitty has passed out. <laughs> uh, We don't know yet if Kitty is
4: correct. Charlie, what do you think? Uh, Well, I'm going to go ahead and say that uh, that was all wrong. (laughs) Okay. That clearly you don't know what you're talking about because despite the fact that your father wrote the book. And I'm going to go ahead and say that the difference is no difference.
1: Oh, that they're the same. They're the same And that comes from the son of a painter. Yeah, so you know it's got to be true. (laughs) Uh, uh, okay, it's time for this segment to move to a new location, location, location. Let's go to Helen Hong at the judges' table for the facts.
0: Here are the facts. A home appraisal is done to determine the fair market value of a specific property. The appraiser is part of a private business and is hired by real estate companies or private sellers to come up with a number. A home assessment is done to determine the tax rate a property owner must pay.
2: Oh, no! <laughs>
1: <laughs>
4: I'm wrong?
0: Whoa! Well, Uh, Probably. Well, (laughs) let's let Helen finish. The assessor is a government employee who usually uses past records rather than the market rate to come up with a number.
1: Uh, That's right, of course. An appraiser uses similar properties called comparables or comps that have sold recently and adjust for differences such as square footage, number of bedrooms and baths, and whether the home was built on an Indian burial ground. (laughs) Helen, what does that mean as far as our points are concerned?
0: I'm going to say two points for Kitty. Two
1: points for the daughter of the man who wrote the book. But you guys have to admit...
4: Yeah. I was close.
1: You
0: were. <laughs> I mean, they're no, not. I mean, you well, were not close at all, but yeah. you were confident. Yes, you were and confident. I bought it. I, I thank bought you it. appreciate for that.
1: that you thought we were tricky enough to give you two things that actually had no difference. <laughs> we're not that clever. Um, all right, up next in There's No Place Like Home, Charlie. Charlie, your question comes from a listener, June Loveland of Shreveport, Louisiana. Listeners, if you'd like to submit a suggestion for our What's the Difference round, go to GoFactorPod.com and click on Get Involved. Charlie, in the topic of There's No Place Like Home, they both are. Places that can be valuable homes, but what is the difference between a palace and a castle? A palace and a castle. I believe that a palace
4: has to house royalty, mm. and a castle can just house a rich guy or a gal. Yes, okay, that is your answer. Just that yes. one,
1: one is for royals, palaces is for, is for royalty.
4: Mm-hmm. Castle is for whoever.
1: Okay, so there is a difference you're conceding. Yes. All right, how, how refreshing. Uh, all right, we have Charlie's answer. We don't know yet if he is correct. Kitty, what do you think?
2: Well, I'm going to kind of split a hair here, because I think you're right. But I'm going to say that a palace has a current resident of mm-hmm. a reigning royal.
4: Ah. This sounds good. You a...
2: <laughs> <laughs> can tell I came from public radio. And a <laughs> castle may have and may not have had, but certainly doesn't currently have a sitting royal living in it.
1: I really appreciate all those conjugations (laughs) in your answer. All right, well, this segment needs some hired help to clean it up. Let's go to Helen Hong at the judges' table for the facts.
0: Here are the facts. A palace is any large, opulent home that can be occupied by anyone, royal or not. A castle is a large home that is fortified against attack usually by walls, towers, moats, and drawbridges. Sometimes a castle is converted into a palace by removing those defenses and enlarging the windows. And sometimes back in the day, a palace was turned into a castle by adding defenses. These defenses or battlements were called crenellations, and often required special permission from the king called a License to Crenolate. <laughs> ah! Yes,
1: that's right, License to Crenolate, my favorite album by Crenilla Ice. <laughs> Helen, what does that mean as far as our points go?
0: Zero points. <laughs> that is
1: correct, no points in that round. What is our score at the end of that round? At
0: the end of that round, Kitty Feldy has two points and Charlie Hankin has zero points. But Aww.
1: those scores are bound to change as we move on to questions about topics our guests have chosen for themselves. That's all up ahead when we come back on Go Fact Yourself.
3: Dead Pilot Society brings you exclusive readings of comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Patton Oswalt. So the
4: vampire from the future sleeps in the dude's studio during the day, and they hunt monsters at night. It's Blade
0: meets the Odd Couple.
3: <laughs> Adam Scott and Jane Levy.
0: Come on, Corey. She's too serious, too businessy. She doesn't know the hokey pokey. Won't well, she
3: learn what it's all about? <laughs> <laughs> Busy Phillips and Dave Keckner.
0: Maybe this is family. My Uncle Tell, who showed his wiener to Cinderella at Disneyland, is family. Do you want him staying with us? He did stay with us for three months. And he was a delight.
3: <laughs> a new pilot every month, only on Dead Pilot Society for maximum fun.
0: Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself, where our score is Kitty Feldy with two points and Charlie Hankin with zero points. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you, Helen.
1: Thank you, everybody. Kitty if of your many interests, he told us you know a lot about the Dodgers' move to L.A. from Brooklyn, Theodore Roosevelt and his children, and the TV show Bonanza. Let's find out a little bit more about each of those. First, you said you know a lot about the Dodgers' move to L.A. from Brooklyn.
2: Yeah, you know, I kind of fell into that. Um, the first politician I ever interviewed in my life was Kenny Hahn, who was an LA County supervisor for longer than God's been around. Mm-hmm. I believe he has a park
1: named after him. Uh, he has a lot of here. things named oh, okay. after him.
2: <laughs> also was the father of our one of our mayors yes, and the congresswoman who's now a supervisor. I mean, you name it, the yeah. Hans have been around. He took me up to the eighth floor of the County Supervisor Building and he points out there and he says, you know, This is how Chavez Ravine came to be. He was in a helicopter with Walter O'Malley and yada, yada, yada. And there was all this interesting intrigue that was connected to it. And I eventually wrote a musical about it. Oh. And did not one but two radio documentaries about it. Oh. You did a musical about the Dodgers move?
1: Can you give us one of the songs? What's the 11 o'clock number?
2: Oh, gosh, what is the 11 o'clock number? All I can remember is, you don't like baseball. That's right. What do you mean? You don't like? That sounds
1: like something me and Helen that's would have exactly. uh, had a conversation about. I was about. just
0: thinking that's something that Jay Keith would <laughs> sing to me.
2: <laughs> Helen, I'm taking you to a Dodger game. Oh, next I'd year. love to see
1: that. We gotta bring that. We gotta bring the mics there. I want to hear her reaction. All right. You also said you know a lot about Theodore Roosevelt and his children.
2: Um, I, I, for some reason, people keep hiring me to write plays about the Roosevelt children. Um, What? I know. That's like a (laughs) specialty that who knew there was one? Wait, so this
1: actually is part of your work?
2: This, it just happened. I mean, Mm, I didn't, you don't let me do it? Well, I
1: mean, technically we're asking you for topics not related to your work, but that might be our fault for not researching it more again. We should have done more research on you. How much
2: money did I get? It wasn't, a living. It was a commission. Oh, commission. Commission's
1: probably fine. Anyway, I'm t- t- sorry, t- I that's, blew it. That, that's fine. I'm no, no, it's, it's, it, was it was a
2: commission.
0: It was a commission. Wait, have you written more than one? Yeah.
1: Wow.
2: About multiple children? Yeah.
1: Tell us about them.
2: Oh, okay. So Alice Roosevelt Longworth. She married a House Speaker. She was the eldest daughter of his first wife, and she's very famous for saying things that are a little nasty and mm. mean. She's the one that said, if you don't have anything nice to say about someone, come sit by me.
1: <laughs> Ooh, I like her. Yeah, yeah, sassy, yeah.
2: Yeah, she helped to kill the League of Nations. I mean, she was, you know, very okay, interesting. I don't like her. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you ended up writing about her? Yeah,
2: an actress, an older actress, was looking for a role, and, this, and she was in her 80s, and so I wrote this part for her. And then suddenly somebody else was doing a White House tour, um, where for all the people who didn't get their security clearance to go do the White House tour, they, they created these three plays where you would have some impersonator playing this character who would take you around the White House and tell you all kinds of interesting stories. And so I wrote about Theodore Roosevelt's youngest son who was Quentin so Roosevelt. So
1: one of the places where your work is performed is at in the White House.
2: Around the White around House. Around the White House. Wait, Near the White House. there's a tour for people who like
0: committed some crime so they can't get into the White House? <laughs> no.
2: (laughs) No, but you have to get your security clearance. Everybody needs one six months in advance. Uh. And most tourists don't know that. They show up and they go, I'm here for my White House tour. And they go, no, you're not. Uh. So this is something to make them feel better.
1: And I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. And then finally, you said you know a lot about the TV show Bonanza. Yeah. Please tell me you wrote a musical about that as no. well. No. No. Okay.
2: <laughs> Couldn't get the rights, dang it. Oh. Um, I had massive crushes uh, first on in the late in the early '70s when Mitch Vogel was doing the fourth Cartwright brother that gets adopted. Cute redheaded. I have a thing for redheaded guys. Okay. okay. And then um, later on, they started showing the old ones, which I hadn't seen for a hundred years, mm-hmm. and. Suddenly, Pernell Roberts came on my screen, you know, in my crush screen. And I started, and I knew he was older by then, you know, kind of, and he was balding. And I decided that every balding, middle-aged actor needed to have a groupie, and I self-appointed myself. Wow. My car was named after him. (laughs) He did um, a musical version There's the musical. I've gone with the wind at the Robinson with Leslie Ann Warren playing Scarlett. And um, I started haunting the rehearsal hall, you know, and bringing cookies and chicken soup. You were a real groupie. I was horrible. And did you get
1: a chance to to meet and talk to him? I saw the show six
2: times. I showed up on opening. I even auditioned for Music Man because he was doing Harold Hill (laughs) and the community project. I didn't get in. but, But anyway, so I showed up on opening night with a rose and my purple gown Stop. that I had made myself. And what was his response? He was so nice. Aww. He introduced me to his second wife, and you oh. know.
1: <laughs> probably not what you had in mind when your no, crush I was originally forming. One day I'll meet him and his second wife. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, well, to summarize, Katie, you said you know a lot about the Dodgers' move to LA from Brooklyn, Theodore Roosevelt and his children, and the TV show Bonanza. Today we want to quiz you about Theodore Roosevelt and his children.
4: <laughs>
2: oh, dear.
1: Well, it sounds like you have no excuse for not getting a perfect score, and it sounds like Charlie, you have a built-in excuse for not winning today's game. Oh yes, <laughs> excellent. Well, that's that's the bright side. Um, now, uh, in the process of researching these different shows, uh, did you end up with a, a favorite story or favorite kid of uh, the Roosevelts?
2: Well, the, I mean, both Alice and Quentin were the most fun. Both mm-hmm. of them because they kept getting into trouble. I see. Quentin used to drop snowballs from the roof of the White House <laughs> down on top of the Secret Service guys' heads. <laughs> you know, how can you not love that? And
1: have you kept up with the family over the years, no, or have you gotten to no. meet any of the family? Family
2: members? Um, no. Okay. I've gone to the birthplace. I've actually, I've the, the play that I wrote about Alice, they did a reading of it in the Theodore Roosevelt birthplace, which is in Gramercy Park in New York. Oh, and it was really cool to be there. Terrific.
1: Yeah. Well, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in Theodore Roosevelt and his children to test your mastery in the subject with an expert level question worth up to three points. But before that, to let you show your love, here are five trivia questions about the topic, each worth one point. If you want it, you're allowed a total of two hints for these five questions. Charlie, do listen closely because if Kitty answers, Incorrectly, you can steal. Charlie, by the way, how much do you know about Theodore Roosevelt and his children? Zero. All right. <laughs> Kitty, it is definitely your game to lose. Yes, it is. Here is question number one Theodore Roosevelt became President Roosevelt in 1901. What was his job immediately prior to becoming president?
2: He was vice president. Helen? That is correct. That is correct.
1: He was vice president. He became president after President McKinley was assassinated and at age 42 was the youngest president the U.S. has ever had. Question number two.
0: McKinley was assassinated?
1: (laughs) I'm kidding. Newsflash. That didn't show up on Twitter? (laughs) Question number two. Theodore Roosevelt had six kids, five with his second and final wife, Edith, and one with his first and penultimate wife named what? What? Alice. I think we know that might be correct, Helen.
0: That is correct. (laughs) Yes,
1: you happened to mention that earlier. You probably know that very, very well. Uh, Fun fact, Edith was the first First Lady to have her own staff in the White House. Uh, Question number three. All of the Roosevelt children were remarkable in their own way, but one was the only child of a U.S. president to die in combat. Who?
2: You know, it was Theodore Roosevelt Jr., it was World War II, I think it was D-Day, or a couple of days thereafter, yeah, I had a heart attack.
1: So your answer again is? I
2: think it's Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Helen? That is not correct.
1: Oh, Charlie with a chance to steal.
2: Oh gosh, I know this, duh.
1: Kevin Roosevelt. <laughs> Helen, was it good old Kevin Roosevelt? It was not. You were not that far off. Oh. It was someone we had been talking about earlier. It was Quentin. It was Quentin oh. Roosevelt, who I believe you wrote a play about.
2: Oh, yeah, I forgot about that.
1: Okay. It just goes to show that when, you know, when you're commissioned to do something, you finish it and maybe you move on to other interests and you don't, you don't remember quite as much. Uh, he was shot down behind German lines while flying for the Army Air Service in World War I. All right, let's see if you can bounce can back. I can I with... give the hint, yeah. though? Yeah. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. If you, you, if you would asked for the hint, it might have helped. Helen, what was that hint?
0: In Scrabble, the first letter of his name is worth 10 <laughs> points.
1: Yeah. Uh, although, actually, Quentin is not an acceptable word in Scrabble, so you actually would not be able to play it.
0: That's a good Question, hint, right?
1: Yeah, it was pretty good. Question number four. Quentin died in 1918, but one of his siblings lived another 62 years, dying in 1980.
2: Who? That would be Alice Roosevelt Longworth. Helen? That is correct. That is
1: correct. It's Alice. <laughs> Helen also did not give a chance to give a hint for this. If you had needed the hint, Helen, what would it have been?
0: There's a new girl in town. <laughs> and Country's she's
1: feeling, feeling good. good.
0: Da, 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 <laughs> in the neighborhood. neighborhood. Very good,
1: Helen. You studied all night, so, so you could use that hint. <laughs>
0: They, they literally made me watch that on YouTube to learn the song you got to
1: watch <laughs> it on YouTube because I had never
0: seen an episode of she's Alice so ever she's so in my young she's so young what was it
1: like to watch a TV show that wasn't widescreen i
0: was like what is happening <laughs>
1: Question number five, it's hard to keep kids entertained in the White House, which led to Roosevelt's children causing all sorts of mischief, including dropping water balloons on the heads of White House guards, frightening officials with a snake, and taking their favorite pony onto the White House elevator. What was the name of the elevated pony?
2: Oh, gosh dang it. It's not, it's not Excelsior, and it's not Archibald, but it's got a name like that.
1: You do have a hint available oh, if you'd like oh, to use yes, the hint. Oh, how about that hint?
2: Ten years after
0: Roosevelt left office, some New York writers famously gathered at a hotel with this name.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, dang it. (laughs) (laughs) Algonquin. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. Algonquin. Very good. I knew you were going to get this, Mr. New Yorker.
1: Yeah. Uh, Quentin and Kermit Roosevelt brought Algonquin up to the second floor of the White House residence in an elevator to cheer up their brother Archie, who was confined to his bed with the measles. So it wasn't just mischief, it was actually very sweet.
0: Wait, so his kids were named Quentin, Kermit, and Archie? Like, what a delightful old timey. Yeah. <laughs>
1: group. It, it was the old timey. Yeah. <laughs> Back then, they just called it timey. <laughs>
0: uh, it's like the definition of old timey. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You did quite well in the that round kitty but now here's your expert level question that requires multiple answers it is time for your cluster fact we'll be bringing out an expert to assess your response kermit roosevelt was another of teddy's kids who led a very interesting wait
2: wait, wait. he never liked to be called teddy it was tr oh yikes
1: Kermit Roosevelt was another one of Theodore T.R. Roosevelt's kids (laughs) who led a very interesting life as a businessman, explorer, author, and soldier for up to three points. What kind of business, using the Roosevelt name, did Kermit start 99 years ago this month? With what sibling did he co-author two books about expeditions in Asia? And in addition to his service in the U.S. Army, what other country's army did he join?
2: Oh, golly. I have no idea. Okay. All right, let's see
1: if you can try to piece it together. All right, so let's together. do
2: this from the top. The, okay. the, the, the many things are, are giving them to me again. The
1: first one is, what kind of business, using the Roosevelt name, did Kermit start 99 years ago this month?
2: Railroads.
1: Railroads, all right. With what sibling did he co-author two books about expeditions in Asia?
2: We're talking Archie here?
1: No, we're talking Kermit. Kermit. Okay, then I'll say Archie. Archie, all right. And then finally, in addition to his service in the U.S. Army, what other country's army did he join?
2: I'm going to say Britain.
1: You say that with a bit of a sneer and an eye roll.
2: I I don't trust myself. You got me on this one, my friend. Uh,
1: Well, we'll see. Helen is taking note of your answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight?
0: Here with us tonight via Skype from Philadelphia is a distinguished author, attorney, and law professor at the University of Pennsylvania who is also the great, great grandson of Theodore Roosevelt. It's Kermit Roosevelt III.
1: Professor Roosevelt, are you there? Yes, I am. It's wonderful to speak with you. Now, uh, you were named, of course, Kermit. You do not go by Kermit usually, is that right? I usually go by Kim. All right, Kim, or Professor Roosevelt, uh, we're going to talk with you about your family in just a moment, but I wanted to talk to you first about your work. Uh, at Penn, you teach constitutional law and conflict of laws. First of all, what does conflict of laws mean?
5: Conflict of laws is about the question of which state's law would govern a case that has contacts with more than one state. I so see. if you rent a car in one state drive into another, get into an accident there, which state's law is going to be controlling.
1: Well, I'm curious, have current events, with the, as we record this, the, the impeachment inquiry is happening, uh, have current events changed how you teach or what you teach to your students?
5: Well, you know, to be honest, I'm a little bit less optimistic about our Constitution. It mm-hmm. seems like the party system has broken it more than I'd realized. Okay,
1: let's talk about something else. Yeah, uh,
0: pass, pass the whiskey, man, yeah, really. am I right? Yeah, no,
1: we, we appreciate your candor, of course. Uh, you were a clerk on the Supreme Court Tell us about that experience.
5: Oh, that was a wonderful experience. Um, I, I clerked for Justice Souter, who was a great man, a great boss. Um, I enjoyed it, and I learned a lot, both you know, from him as a justice and from him as a human being.
1: And uh, you ended up writing about Supreme Court clerks uh, in a
5: fictional, sort of fictional uh, piece that you do? Yeah, uh, my most recent fiction project, I've written a couple novels, but my most recent project is a serialized fiction project about Supreme Court clerks. Um, it's available online at CerealBox.com. It's called First Street, which mm-hmm. is the street the Supreme Court's on. And is it all business and
1: all serious when you're clerking for Supreme Court justice? Or is there is it like any other workplace where there's inside jokes and fun and
5: teasing and stuff like that? Oh, there's definitely jokes. There's even actually a skit that the clerks put on for the justices at the end of the year mm-hmm. where they sort of make jokes about the cases that, that the court has heard and things like that.
0: No. Do they yeah, sing? Musical.
5: They sing. I sing. You do? You oh.
0: sang? Do you remember what, what the topic uh, I was? I did.
5: Not very well. It was about Justice Souter's opinion writing. It's funnier if you were there.
1: Okay, that's, <laughs> I think we'll take your word for that. So uh, what was it like growing up as a Roosevelt? When do you start to realize that you're part of this amazing family legacy?
5: Well, pretty early, I guess. I mean, Alice was still alive when I was a kid, and we, oh, right. we went to her birthday party. Um, and there were, you know, President Ford was there. So that was unusual.
1: and and what did it mean to you to as you were learning more about the legacy, what did it mean to you to realize that you were part of this sort of American royalty?
5: Well, I mean, it's it's double-edged in some ways because obviously it's a great thing. it's a privilege. on the other hand, it it implicates me in a history that I feel I can't live up to. Um, you know, it makes me wonder whether the things that I've gotten I deserve on my own. I think, I think um, being but, a
1: professor at Penn in law is a pretty, pretty good accomplishment, let alone uh, the Supreme Court clerking and, and all this
5: writing that you've done. Well, thank you.
0: Okay. Do you have a really cool mustache?
5: <laughs> Not at the moment. But you're giving me ideas. Okay.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think you could probably grow one if you wanted to.
5: You have
1: the genetics for it.
5: Worth a shot.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I
0: bet you also look really great in a safari hat. <laughs> down,
2: Helen, down.
0: Okay.
1: Helen, please. <laughs> All right, well, let's get to the reason that we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the question that we asked of Kitty Feldy. We're asking her about uh, Kermit Roosevelt, the first, I suppose. Uh, we wanted to know first what yeah. kind of business, using the Roosevelt name, did Kermit start 99 years ago this month? Helen, what did Kitty say?
0: Kitty said railroads.
1: And Professor?
5: I'm sorry that is wrong. The answer was
1: Steamship. It was Steamship. Pretty close. It was in transportation, but it was the Roosevelt Steamship Company. No point there. Next, we want to know with what sibling did he co-author two books about expeditions in Asia? Helen, what did Kitty say?
0: Kitty said Archie.
1: And Professor? That is also wrong. The answer was Ted. Ted. Ted or Theodore Jr. No point there. Finally, we want to know in addition to his service in the U.S. Army, what other country's army did he join? Helen, what did Kitty say?
0: Kitty said Britain.
1: And Professor? Professor? Yes, that is right. That and is correct. You got a point. Significant action. Kitty can't believe it. Uh, how, how much of uh, your family have you studied, uh, either as a, as a personal interest because it is your family or for your studies or for your work?
5: Well, there's you know, some interesting constitutional law topics with mm. both Theodore and Franklin. But most of what I know, I've just read some biographies out of a sense of obligation, really.
0: Great. Wait, so the question was about Kermit Roosevelt, who is your grandfather, right? He's my
5: great grandfather.
0: Oh Kermit was your great grandfather. Yes.
1: And so there was you're, you're number yeah. three, so it seems like a generation was skipped as far as naming someone Kermit?
0: Well, I'm actually the fourth.
5: Oh. I'm the fourth Kermit. They call me the third. There's a weird thing that goes on. There's actually like an argument about it on oh. Wikipedia, like what my numeral <laughs> should be. What? I
4: Wait a minute, your tried name to is tell being them,
5: but they wouldn't believe me. Your name is being argued about on Wikipedia? Yes. And wow. they wanted to call me the fourth.
1: And it's your name and you're not winning the argument? <laughs> No,
5: no, not really. They don't, right, they don't well, listen to people who are the subject of articles.
1: <laughs> we'll see wow. if we can do something about that. Katie, is there anything you'd like to ask Professor Roosevelt or uh, say to him?
2: Oh, two things. So, was what was was Alice scary to you? Because you must have been really young when you met her. Not
5: really. I mean, I think I was, I was too young to be aware of the way in which she could sort of in socially history? cut you dead. Right. Mm-hmm. I was impervious to that because I was just a
2: child and have you ever spent the night at sagamore hill which is one of the most beautiful places on planet earth
5: not inside it i mean i've been there for events i've spent the night in the in the area but i've never like slept in that house
1: have you done the white house tour uh that involves (laughs) uh something that kitty wrote about your family
5: i haven't but i'll look for that
1: is that because you have security clearance and you get it taken care of in advance I do have security clearance. Ah, there it so is. It probably
0: expired. I think you've got a lot of t- things added just now to your to-do list. <laughs> grow Definitely the mustache, grow get the mustache. hat, go to Sagamore yeah. Hills, spend the night, and then go to the t- tour outside the White House. Sounds like
5: a great weekend. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> mustache might take longer.
1: Professor Roosevelt, it's so wonderful that you joined us. If people want to find out more about you or your work, where can they do that? Best just to Google me. Things will come up. All right, so <laughs> Google... Kermit Roosevelt, the third, or the fourth, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for joining us. Professor Kermit Roosevelt, the third, or the fourth. Thank you. Helen, what is our score at the end of that round? At
0: the end of that round, Kitty Feldy has seven points and Charlie Hankin has zero points with a round of questions coming up.
1: That's right, we're gonna talk with Charlie about a topic he knows about, plus later Kitty and Charlie will go head-to-head in our Fast Fact round to find a winner on Go Fact Yourself. I'm Travis McElroy.
0: I'm Courtney Enlow.
1: I'm Brent Black, and we're the hosts of Trends Like These.
0: Trends Like These is an internet news show where we take the
4: stories trending on social media and go beyond the headlines.
1: We'll give you the actual facts of the story and not just the knee-jerk reactions. Plus, we end every episode with a ray of hope that we call the Wi-Fi of the week. So join us every Friday on Maximum
2: Fun.
0: Or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Trends Like These, real-life friends talking internet trends
0: to Go Fact Yourself, where our score is Kitty Feldy with seven points and Charlie Hankin with zero points. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you,
1: Helen. Charlie, got your work cut out for you, but I uh, I have confidence in you. Now, of your many interest, Charlie, you told us you know a lot about 2001 A Space Odyssey, the making of the atomic bomb, and the Heaven's Gate cult. Let's find out a little bit more about each one. First, (laughs) 2001 A Space Odyssey.
4: Okay, this is the one I know the least about. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I have seen it. I love it. I've seen it more times than any other Kubrick movie, and Kubrick is one of my favorite directors. Okay. Um, I also got curious about the making of and the timeline and his collaboration with Arthur C. Clarke. I think it looks phenomenal in 2019, just the way it did in 1968, Um, but I am hardly an expert.
1: What about it appeals to you?
4: I like that it's so open, open to interpretation. I, I, Kubrick I was sort of held to task after the movie came out about how how much it defies description, and and people wanted to know what it meant. And I, I think he said something to the effect of like, "Well, it, would you ever ask uh, what the Mona Lisa is smiling about?" And if if someone told you that it was because she had bad breath and was embarrassed, would that be satisfying for you? Yeah, or would I'd that... love to know that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I guess he should have been in conversation with you at <laughs> yes. the time. Yeah, that really uh, was his falling, wasn't it? Yeah, no, yeah. seriously. Yeah. His main problem. Yeah, no, no. But
1: you, but you like that it, that it's mysterious, that it's real art in the I, way that Mona Lisa is. You can uh, yeah, think about uh, it however
4: you like. I, I think considering that it is, uh, at its core, an enigmatic psychological thriller, um, I, I appreciate how much... Uh, silence there is yeah. in it. I like how atmospheric it is. I, I like that if you subtract out the enigmatic nature of the, the monolith and the, the ending sequence with the star tri- child, and, and you just sort of look at the bare bones of the script and, mm. and the structure of the movie, it's pretty normal. Mm. You get rid of all the mysterious stuff, and it's just a robot in a spaceship killing a bunch of guys. <laughs> yeah.
1: Which is what most that's movies why are these days. I, that's yeah, why I love uh, it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm like, it's a robot in a spaceship killing <laughs>
1: <laughs> It's got something for everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. You also said, Charlie, that you know a lot about the making of the atomic bomb.
4: Yeah. So I, I am a rather poor student of history. I'm not great at names, and I'm not great at dates. But what I found compelling about the history of the atomic bomb is is really. More, more philosophical than, than historical, I just think it's amazing that humankind was able to split an atom before humankind was ever able to see an atom. Mm. And I think that it's a, a completely unique set of circumstances, and the, the direly, desperately high stakes of the World War meant that it was a, an utterly unique position in history in which the government could spend $2 billion on an engineering project. There, there's never been anything like that in that exact way since...
1: Excellent. Wow. Uh, that have was you ever deep. tried to make? Yeah. Have you ever tried to make one yourself? Uh, no, but
4: some kid got in trouble for doing that. What? I mean, he he found out that smoke detectors contain a small amount of radioactive material. Oh, which well, is that just, sounds <laughs> safe. <laughs> and he wanted to try it at home, and and the government came down on him hard.
0: So you're saying that the. The 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 fire alarm aisle at Home Depot <laughs> oh, good point, is Helen. extremely, like, radioactive <laughs> and one should wear a hazmat suit yeah, to definitely. go down that aisle. You know
1: what? I think that's what those orange aprons are for. <laughs> yeah, right. They're made of lead. All right. And then finally, Charlie, you said you know a lot about the Heaven's Gate cult. I do, yeah. Now, for those who don't remember, explain what that was briefly. So there
4: was a community of r- religious folks. Um, <laughs> It's very diplomatic. Listen, I'm just trying to I want to I want to be real straight with you guys. Yeah. Uh <laughs> they were an American UFO cult who believed in an interpretation of the Bible that held that the book of Revelations was actually written in code and and was a foretelling of an alien visitation, which is what they understood to be the second coming. In 1997, they all committed suicide. Mm. So what the cult is remembered for today is is really two things, is that uh, in San Diego County, they all dressed up in their finest black shirts and sweatpants and brand new Nikes and put $5 in 75 cents in their pockets and drank vodka and ate, you know, barbitol mixed with uh, applesauce or pudding, and, and 39 people died. Um, yeah, rough stuff for yeah. sure. But the other thing they're remembered for is the fact that they were the first cult to exist in the age of the internet. Mm. So their entire dogma was laid bare on the internet. And when mm. it became a news story in March of 1997, you could flip on the tv and watch the news and and want to know more and go to heavensgate.com which is still operational no still up who's
0: paying their web fees so interesting
4: you should ask (laughs) 39 people died but there are i think still four practicing members who who basically live to maintain the legacy of the cult and the website what about that cult appeals to you you think at the time that I got interested, I was, I was reading a lot about religious fundamentalism and, and came across this, this book by, I think his name was Andrew Zeller, who was the preeminent documenter of the story of Heaven's Gate, and I just thought there's nothing else like this. It just mm. really grabbed my imagination.
1: All right. So to summarize, Charlie, you said you know a lot about 2001 A Space Odyssey, the making of the atomic bomb, and the Heaven's Gate cult. Today, we're going to quiz you about 2001 A Space Odyssey.
0: That's the one I was gunning for. Did I
4: mention I'm not great with names or dates? Yes,
0: but
1: just to clarify, you did not work on the movie. (laughs) That is correct. Okay, So at least it's legit.
0: Wait, Uh, how many times have you seen it, you think?
1: I've probably seen it five or six times. Uh And do you understand the last segment and scene of it? I think that understanding
4: misses the point I, I ah. like that it's it's a mirror you hold it up to an audience and the audience sees themselves and maybe c- constructs their own interpretation of the events and, and I certainly have my own interpretation which okay. I think is fairly mainstream but I don't know that I would ever claim to understand
1: it because I wouldn't claim anybody does because I well I watched it uh, this week in preparation for this and I definitely do not understand <laughs> it. but it, but it's very very pretty it's yes. it, it's, it's gorgeous yeah. Yeah. I would yeah. love
0: to hire the um, interior decorator for my house <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if we can arrange that yeah. Alan.
1: Just ahead, we're going to list the help of a bona fide expert in the topic with our three-part question. But before that, to give you a chance to show off, here are five trivia questions about it, each worth one point. If you want it, you're allowed a total of two hints for these five questions. Now, Katie, do listen closely because you can steal if Charlie gets any of them wrong. Katie, by the way, how much do you know about 2001?
2: I fell asleep in that film. <laughs> oh, okay.
1: So you know that it's very relaxing.
2: Yeah. All right. <laughs>
1: Charlie, here we go with question number one. Many of those who haven't seen the movie still know the famous dialogue between astronaut Dave and the computer Hal. When Hal says, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that, it's in response to what repeated command? Open the pod bay doors. Ellen?
3: That is
0: correct. That is, of course, correct.
3: (laughs)
1: Uh, Hal stood for heuristically programmed algorithmic computer, and coincidentally was one letter off from the computer maker IBM. All right, question. Can I do the hint? Oh yes. If you did not need the hint, but if you had needed it, Helen, what would that hint have been?
0: Boy, it sure is stuffy in this pod bay. <laughs> Hal. Mm-hmm. Could we do something? Ab- All right. <laughs>
1: Question number two. The movie received four Oscar nominations, three of which were for Stanley Kubrick. Name one of the categories for which he received a nomination uh, Best Visual Effects. Helen?
0: That is correct. That is
1: correct. Best Visual Effects, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Director. Uh, He won, actually, for Best Visual Effects. Uh, The film was also nominated for Art Direction. You're two for two. Here's question number three. The movie was ahead of its time in many ways, and one of them was product placement, with many brands supplying what they thought their branded technology would look like in the future. Which of the following brands, though, was not featured (laughs) in the film? Hilton, Pan Am, American Express, Coca-Cola, or the BBC? I can
4: remember Pan Am in it. And Hilton makes sense. Okay. He shot a lot in England, so I'd be tempted to say the BBC, but... Which was? one was not? Yeah, yes. r- yeah, oh, that's right. I think the BBC is in there, because okay. I think there's a news report during the Mission to Jupiter thing. So I haven't eliminated Coca-Cola yet, right? Or that's correct. I've I mean, not discussed it. you
1: not discussed Coca-Cola or American Express or the other ones you've not discussed.
4: I would like to venture a guess and say Coca-Cola was not in 2001 of Space Odyssey.
1: Helen? That is correct. That is correct. Woo! Very good. Woo! Nicely deduced. Uh, American Express was in the film. You actually see a little shot of uh, his card when he uses the video phone. To phone his daughter. Uh, That's right. American Express actually had proposed a smart ring with account information to use in the film, but it's actually an Amex card that's used when Dr. Floyd is paying for the video phone call. Here is question number four. Great
0: deduction. Thank
1: you. Question number four. When Dr. Floyd makes a video phone call to his daughter, she asks for two different birthday presents. Name them.
4: One of them is an animal. I think one of them is maybe a rabbit. You do have a hint of like like Helen, please. how about that first hint?
0: You likely have one of the items on you right now.
4: Oh, a telephone. Okay. A telephone and a rabbit?
1: Helen, is it a telephone and a rabbit? It is not. Oh. Not exactly. Kitty with a chance to steal.
2: Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um a monkey and, Helen, and? and a pen knife.
1: Helen, is it a monkey and a penknife? No, it is not. No, but but that's how I got through my safari in Africa. Uh, no, uh, telephone was correct. A bush baby was the other oh. one. A telephone <laughs> and a bush baby. <laughs> yeah, pretty close. Ellen, would you like to give him a half a point for telephone? I would. All right, a half oh, a point you. for Charlie for telephone. Wait, what's a bush baby? Uh, a bush baby, would you like to explain, Kitty? I have no idea. Oh, okay. It's 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 a, a, I believe it's like a, small... a
4: It's like a marsupial yes. tree climbing little cutie thing. Yes.
1: Big eyes and they're adorable, and you'd love them. You'd love them. Okay. Yes. Uh, Fun fact: Dr. Floyd's daughter was played by Stanley Kubrick's daughter, Vivian, and her only character name is Squirt. Uh, Later on, she became estranged from her family after joining the Church of Scientology. (laughs) You're three and a half for four. Let's see how you do with question number five. Okay. Much of the last segment of the film takes place in what appears to be a neoclassical French hotel room. In April of 2018, a museum hosted a full-scale immersive installation of a replica of this room, designed in conjunction with some of the people who worked on the original set. What museum was it? This was 2018? Yes. I believe you have a hint available, if I'm not
4: mistaken. My, my guess would be that it, it is a museum in L.A. or the United Kingdom mm-hmm. because of Hollywood and he spent so much time in England. But I would like the hint, please. Helen, how about that second hint?
0: You can see real spacecraft here, too.
4: Oh, is it the smithsonian helen
0: that is correct that is correct the air and space museum of the smithsonian
1: very very nicely (laughs) done in that category charlie hankin but now here's your expert level question that requires multiple answers it is time for your cluster fact We'll be bringing on an expert to assess your response. One of the movie's most famous scenes, of course, is its beginning, showing a bunch of man-apes eating, carrying on, and fighting, focused on one particular ape referred to in the screenplay as Moonwatcher, for up to three points. What is the on-screen title for this first part of the movie? What is the full name of the composer of the iconic also sprach Zarathustra music that plays in this sequence? And what is the name of the actor who plays Moonwatcher? I know two of them. Okay. The Dawn of Man is the title of that sequence. All right. One person thinks you might be right. Audience, fans please. Fans of the
4: Dawn of Man sequence from yes, 2001.
1: Yes. <laughs> Th- that's pretty much on brand with our audience. But audience, um, please l- let him figure out the answers.
4: Also, Sprach Zarathustra mm-hmm. is by Richard Strauss. Richard Strauss. All right. I know that the ape men were played by mimes. And I know that Moonwatcher was played by a mime. All right. We're going to need to be a little more specific than that. No. Uh, And I'm out of hints. No hints for this. No hints for Buster Factor. I, I once knew his name, and I want to say it was David something. Can I get a half point for David something?
1: We will leave that up to our expert. You're going to say David something. Yes. All right. Helen is taking note of your answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight?
0: Here with us tonight is a writer, director, and actor who played Moonwatcher <gasps> in 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's Dan Richter. Dan
1: Richter, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Charlie leaping to his feet to say Hello. Mr. Richter, welcome. Please have a seat right oh there.
0: Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Helen, also very excited. It's we are Board honored. Watcher. Uh, I'm
3: let's... so
1: sorry I didn't know your name.
3: Well, I, I forget it myself sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's very gracious of you.
1: Uh, Mr. Richter, we're going to talk about 2001 in due time. But first, uh, first of all, welcome. Uh, we want to talk about something else first. You have something in common with Charlie that regards your father.
3: Yes, I just told him. Uh, My father was Bisha Richter. He was a cartoonist for The New Yorker for more than 50 years. Wow!
4: Whose work was extraordinary.
1: And uh, you knew the editor uh, that we talked about earlier, the editor emeritus. Bob Mankoff,
3: My- yes. Yes, I, yes I, I, as I grew older, I understood the cartoons less and less. So I had to, <laughs> I would email Bob and say, what does this mean? You know? <laughs> so it was nice to have that access, because I think a lot yeah. of times people read The New Yorker and don't get it. You actually yeah. could get your uh, question answered. I, th- I knew a number of uh, cartoon editors over the years, but but Bob was the last one that... I was familiar with. (laughs) That's terrific. So uh, as a writer also, you've written some uh,
1: nonfiction work. You wrote a book about uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, and that was based on your own experience. Tell us about that. Yeah, the
3: dream is over. Uh, I lived with John and Yoko for four years and and did did four of their record covers. Uh, When you say did did the record covers, how do you mean? Well, Yoko said to me one morning, you know, that John had drawn this picture of him holding her under a tree and she Whatnot and and she had the idea. Well, why don't they were going to do the Plastic Ono Band albums, and they wanted uh, one with her holding him and the other with him holding her, mm. the same shot. And I thought, you know, I thought, well, I was thinking of Sarah, so I got the cheapest plastic lens camera I could, mm. and we went out one morning and took the photographs. What? And then and Yoko and I were, and John were thinking about it, and we wanted to sort of break up and be moody. So I developed them. I had built a, a, a dark room at the house, and uh, I developed. I put in neutral density and made it all break up, and I did that. <laughs> how, well, how great were the sixties? I mean, seriously. Oh, yeah.
0: Wait, I, how was? How did you even know them, and how did you end up living well, in their I house? Well, I
3: was studying the. Um, the No Theater in Tokyo in '63, about well, spring of '64, and Yoko is doing uh, conceptual performances at the Sugetsu Art Center, and we had mutual friends who had done performances together with her in Germany. So, she and I spent a lot of time together, and I was doing street performances uh, to pay for while I studied the uh, the No Theater as a mime. As a mime. I'd written some poetry uh, that I wanted translated into Japanese, so Yoko translated it for me, and, and we made these beautiful signs that I would Ugh. put up on the street, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. Uh, I love uh, how you're just mm-hmm.
0: casual about this yeah, stuff, yeah. like, you know, me and Yoko. Well, and also,
3: when I was working on 2001, Yoko had come to do, I think she was Peggy Guggenheimer, somebody had given her some money, and she had come to London to do a symposium on destruction and art. And we ran into each other on the subway, and uh, we ended up getting apartments side by side that we could <laughs> open up and turn into salons for writers and artists to um, hang oh out and do things. You know. What a life. Uh, let's talk about what you're doing these days. It's been
1: a bit of a, bit of, a, bit of a shift. Uh, you're a bit of an outdoorsman now, I understand. Yeah, well,
3: I do as little as possible. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Me uh, too. Yeah, I think you've yeah. earned it, though. Well, you know, I'm I'm old. You know, so I, I don't have to do anything. Yeah. But I, uh, I, I ski about 60 days a year. What? I teach, teach rock climbing. Uh, today I was doing some trail work up on Mount Wilson. Oh
0: my I'm God, you're the most interesting man alive.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Forget that guy in the commercials. Yeah. This is him.
3: My goodness. Uh, all right, well, let's talk about 2001. How did you get that gig? Well, I wasn't looking for a job uh because I at that time I was I was doing a, a poetry review in London and uh the I opposite was, of a job. Yeah, yeah, I was I was I was publishing Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs and people like that and uh and so I taken I taken a leave of absence from performing while I was Publishing, bringing all these poets together. Yeah. Wait, performing and, as, and, as a and mime. And I was, I was yeah. teaching mime and doing some private performance, small performances. And um, Arthur and Stanley couldn't get the opening right of the picture. And they'd already shot all the live action. And while talking, they said, You know, we've talked to all these different people. We've never talked to a mime, you know.
0: Because <laughs> they don't talk. And,
3: uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was, uh, we had mutual friends. And I was asked to come out for Stanley to pick my brain. And I was not looking for a job or anything. And I told him I thought the problem was willing suspension of disbelief, that it was an acting problem, not a movement problem. And he had to grab the audience by the balls within 30 seconds. And that I thought I could do it. What? Wow! And um, so he brought you on, though, if I understand, as a
1: choreographer first.
3: Yeah, I didn't want to play uh, Moonwatcher, and I refused to play it uh, for. I held out for about six months. He knew he was going to get me to do it. <laughs> Why didn't you want but, to do it? You didn't want to be in the, the eight well. Trip? I, I was. Resp- I had to develop the movement, help develop the costume, uh, cast twenty-five people, train them. And then figure out what they're doing on set with Stanley Kubrick. And you changing. saw thousands of people for, for this role. We went right? through tens of thousands wow. of people. What? The problem was the costumes were so complex mm. that you know you can always if you have a big stick you can always teach people how to do move and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you have enough time. Right. Um, and so uh, we had to cast the people to fit the costumes. I see. Rather than build the costumes on the people. Oh. And so uh, we were looking for very skinny people who wouldn't make the costumes look bulky, <laughs> you know. So I was looking at, um, you know, high school uh, track teams and things like that. You know. The movement basically is the upper body is uh, the activities of a chip with a bit of gorilla in there. And the lower body is a, a, a gibbon walking on the ground at half speed. Huh. Wow. And, you just uh,
0: described my perfect date. <laughs> <laughs> if you're yeah. out there, yeah. hit
3: yeah. Helen up. And yeah. I, you know, when I, studied, I had to study it's, it's It gets all technical. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of work was done. And Stanley gave me free reign. So I had about well, almost eight months to develop it. Well, from what I understand, uh, one of the most famous edits in all of
1: movie history, when, mm. when you throw that bone up into the air and it becomes the, the yeah. spacecraft, that was not planned. That was something that came about no, it on, on the day that you had something to do with that.
3: Yeah, the, 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 that, that goes back early on when I first did the, when I first pick up the bone, which I've never had a bone, held anything really, except mm-hmm. pull the roots up and stuff, uh, and, and broke the, the skull the first time when I, I, was, I decided I didn't just pick it up and hit, you know, he never used it before, so I sort of was playing with it, and one bone went up in the air, just like that. And, I, and I, Stanley and I were talking, because we were shooting without sound, and I was wearing a mask, so I said, oh shit, I'm sorry, and, <laughs> and he said, no, 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 this is good, it's good. And so he then continued that theme of the bone moving mm-hmm. until finally he and Arthur were walking back from a rostrum we had built outside, and he, he saw a broomstick on the ground, and he picked it up and started throwing it. And then he ran into the editing room, and he, he knew he had it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: Wow. Now, uh, you
1: compiled a lot of your memories uh, from your time on this movie into a book that's called Moonwatcher's Memoir. Mm-hmm. Uh, did that bring back a lot of memories as you were putting that book together? It
3: did. It was really wonderful because, you know, the, the, Stanley died just when I was thinking of doing it. And, and Arthur, said to, Arthur Clark said to be, you know, Moonwatcher, you've gotta write down what happened because mm-hmm. you and Stanley were the only people who knew the whole thing. Sure. So what I did is I, I went over to England and I interviewed absolutely everybody who had anything to do with it. And those tapes are all now in the Kubrick collection in London. But, um, and I, I reconstructed day by day, minute by minute, what, what we did. Wow.
0: I, I gotta tell you, as a sci-fi fan, I am just, just like dying with it, it, like intense um, like amazement at everything that you've just mm-hmm. said, and mm. I'm like, I want to get this book and I want to read it and yeah. I want to hear all the mm. stories, and I just can't believe all the like incredibly interesting backstory to come mm. up with that really iconic moment. Yeah,
3: it was well, you know, I mean, Stanley Kubrick, you know, <laughs> but you
0: but you he, told he, him to grab it by the balls.
3: Well, also, you know, Stanley would always say if, like, he wanted to get six moments in a film. Mm-hmm. And he would work and work and work and focus in until he got those moments. Because he knew if he didn't have them, he didn't have a masterpiece. Mm. And, uh, and so he was prepared to, to do whatever was necessary to find those moments. Uh,
1: last thing I want to ask you about, I could talk to you about this all night, I read that Arthur C. Clarke called you the most famous unknown actor in the world. Yes. Uh, how did you <laughs> feel about having done such iconic work but still being unknown?
3: Well, I, I, I like it and I hate it. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of nice because I'm a, I'm a very... Like, I, I was up in the mountain today, all alone, wandering off trail, you know, trying to find a quiet place. Uh, and so I like that. And I also like, you know, and I'm also a narcissist, so I love... This, you, know, <laughs> you, you did say yes to coming on this show and talking yeah, about I it. Love yeah, the, I love this. This is great. Oh, I it's wonderful. You know, wonderful adju- to have you. Adulation. Absolutely. Yeah. And
1: well-deserved. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get to the reason that we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the question that we asked of Charlie about your famous scene. First, we wanted to know what was the on screen title for that first part of the movie. Helen, what did Charlie say?
0: The Dawn of Man. And
1: Mr. Richter? He was correct. He is correct. That's a point for Charlie. Next, we wanted to know what is the full name of the composer of the iconic music that played in that sequence? Helen, what did Charlie say?
0: Charlie said Richard Strauss.
1: And Mr. Richter? He was correct. He was correct as well. We thought we might have fooled you because a lot of people think Johann Strauss because he has pieces later in the film. And finally, we wanted to know what is the name of the actor who played the famous Moonwatcher? Helen, what did Charlie say?
0: David something. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
3: There was a David Charkham who played one of the apes. Ah, quarter point, please. Yeah. <laughs> but who played the Moonwatcher? So that was me. That was you, Mr. Yeah. Daniel Richter. Yeah. Charlie, I'm sure
1: you're dying to ask or say something, Mr. Richter. Well, here's your chance.
4: Oh man, I mean, I want to ask what you were up to in the 70s and 80s and 90s. <laughs> yeah. and that. Yeah. those the way were the 60s. What were the other decades You, you like... don't want to know. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll
4: find out later. We'll yeah. talk yeah. after. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I just it, it boggles the mind. You've already completely changed my understanding of how Stanley Kubrick worked. Because I I pictured him as a perfectionist. I pictured him as mm. someone who, who, who worked to, to make the outside world, his actors and sets and costumes fit the model in his mind and it sounds like he was so much more open
3: to improvisation stanley did more research than any director i've ever known and we worked endlessly to, but he was prepared to throw it throw it away in an instant if mm. he saw something that was that he felt was better pointed a new pointed a new direction for him to go
1: wow i could talk to you about this movie uh, all night it's such an honor and a, and a pleasure and a thrill that you joined
3: us if people mm. want to find out more about you or your work where can they go just Google Dan Richter, you know. (laughs) And, uh, uh, yeah, or you could go to danrichter.com, you know. Yeah, and I think you're gonna want to. It's wonderful to have you here, Mr. Dan Richter.
1: Thank you so much, sir. Helen, what is our score as we go into the final round? It
0: is really close. Kitty Feldy has seven points and Charlie Hankin has six and a half points. All right,
1: now it is time for our final round. We call Fast Facts. I'll read 10 statements and each contestant will answer with true or false. I'll start with Kitty and alternate between each guest. Each correct answer is worth one point. Again, the answer to each statement is true or false. Here we begin. Kitty, Phantom of the Opera is a Broadway musical.
0: True, correct.
1: Charlie, Phantom of the Opera is one of the longest running Broadway musicals ever. False. Incorrect. No, it is. Kitty, Phantom of the Opera is the longest-running Broadway musical ever.
0: False. Incorrect. No,
1: it really is. Charlie, Phantom of the Opera has more than twice as many performances as the second-longest-running Broadway show. True. Incorrect. No, no, it's uh, it's about four thousand ahead of number two, the revival of Chicago. Katie, the average ticket price this year to Phantom of the Opera on Broadway is over one hundred dollars. True. Incorrect. No, it's only about eighty-five. But still, really? Charlie, the stage version of Phantom of the Opera in all venues has made more at the box office than any movie ever. False.
0: Incorrect. No, it really has
1: over six billion dollars. Crazy. Katie, the first U.S. tour of Phantom of the Opera lasted twenty years.
2: True.
0: Correct. Yes,
1: Charlie, there was a sequel to Phantom of the Opera. True. Correct. Kitty, the sequel was called Phantom Two Out of the Dark. True.
0: Incorrect. No, I'm
1: sorry, Charlie, the sequel was called Phantom Two Behind the Mask. True. Incorrect. Kitty, the sequel was called Phantom Two, Still Phantoming.
2: False. <laughs> Correct.
1: Charlie, the sequel was called Phantom Two the Phantom Menace. False. <laughs> Correct. Kitty, the sequel was called F- Two Phantom Two Furious. <laughs>
0: False, correct.
1: Charlie, the sequel was called Phantom Two Electric Opera-loo. False. Correct. Kitty, I stayed up all night writing names of phantom sequels.
2: True, correct. Charlie,
1: it was totally worth it. <laughs> True. Let's not count those last ones. Let's give a nice hand to both Charlie Hankin and Kitty Feldy as Helen tabulates the final score. By the way, the sequel was called Love Never Dies. Not as fun as ours, I thought. Helen, are you ready to announce a winner on today's show?
0: I am at the end of the game. Kitty Feldy has nine points, and Charlie Hankin has seven and a half points.
1: Congratulations, Kitty Feldy. You are the facting champion. Shaking hands, very courteous. Kitty, what will you do with your championship?
2: I'm going to mail all of my New Yorkers that have cartoons from Charlie Rank and try to get an autograph or two out of this. All
1: right, let's see if we can make that happen. Uh, That just leaves us the opportunity for everyone on the panel to promote any products, appearances, or services. Kitty, what are you up to and where can people find you?
2: Kittyfeldy.com, VinaMendoza.com, BookClubForKids.com, and you can find me in the socials in the same name. And, uh... Do listen to Phine- the Fina Mendoza Mysteries. It's a lovely little podcast.
1: Excellent, and you're a lovely little guest, and I don't mean to sound that as belittling as it came out. We're very happy to have Miss Kitty Feldy. Sometimes segues hurt people. What can I do? Charlie Hankin, what about you? You
4: can find me online on Instagram at me, Charlie Hankin. I'm also on Twitter. My website is charliehankin.com. Stay tuned for new cartoons as ever in The New Yorker and elsewhere, and probably more good cop, great cop to come as well. Excellent. It was
1: good and great to have you, Mr. Charlie Hankin. Uh Ladies and gentlemen, my hosting partner is your co-host, Ms. Helen Hong. You
0: can find my... Yes! You can find my performance calendar at HelenHong.com, and you can find me on the socials at... Funny Helen Hong, I'm going to be up in the mountains chasing Dan Richter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Helen Hong, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and me, you can find me on Twitter at J underscore Keith, on Instagram at Jkeith.net, all spelled out. That just leaves me to thank Kitty Feldy, Charlie Hankin, Kermit Roosevelt, the third or fourth, Dan Richter. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, all at GoFactorPod, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and update our wiki at GoFactorWiki.fandom.com. I'm J. Keith Van Stratton, Good night. Like what you hear, come see us live. It's free. Go to GoFactorPod.com for our schedule and tickets. And give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts like Isaac and Kira did. He, she, or they said, I love this show. I can't stop listening. Thanks, Isaac and Kira. Don't. Helen? <laughs>
0: don't stop listening. Don't is stop what listening he meant. What he to what I'm trying to say. Go Fact Yourself is a panel quiz program devised by Jim Newman and J. Keith Van Stratten and comes to you via transcription from the Angel City Brewery in downtown Los Angeles. Questions on Go Fact Yourself were compiled by the Trivia Industrial Complex. It is produced in collaboration with Maximum Fun. Go Fact Yourself's theme song and incidental music were written and performed by Jonathan Green. Maximum Fun's senior producer is Laura Swisher. The show is edited by Julian Burrell. Dave McKeever is our live sound engineer. Special thanks to Mark Norberg, Tiffany Schlosser, Christian Stone, Alison Arngrim, Dr. Linnea Newman, Clint Tauscher, Sonia Weiser, Mike Avellanos, Carol Davis, Adam Needif, Dave Bianchi, Eric Tran, and Christine Vallada. I've been Helen Hall! Let's go into the mountains and throw bones!
1: Hey everybody, Jay Keith here. On the next episode of Go Fact Yourself, we've got comedian Jamie Loftus
2: we yeah. take a famous movie every week.
4: Usually we kind of tear it apart mm-hmm. from a feminist perspective. My favorite childhood movie was Titanic, and it does way better than you think it would. <laughs> really? I
5: felt,
2: I felt so much because
4: I,
1: I was mean, like... I mean, it is the lady that ends up on the floating door.
2: She lives. She doesn't even
4: offer him.
0: <laughs>
1: Versus comedian Craig Shoemaker. I tell you how much I'm what I have. A little daughter, a five-year-old. She met a cat down the street. She goes, Mommy, I want a cat. My wife says, Your dad's allergic. My daughter goes,
4: Let's get another dad.
1: (laughs) You're not going to want to miss it. It's Go Fact Yourself, dropping every first and third Friday here at Maximum Fun.
2: MaximumFun.org.
1: Comedy and culture.
2: Artist owned. Audience supported.